This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is called Coal Citizens or Solar Citizens. It's a bit of a state of the nation show looking at where we are at in the great transition from coal, gas and oil to energy that doesn't cause global warming. I'd like to dedicate this show to my friends in Mudgee, where they have been having temperatures over 40 degrees for ages and now bushfires nearby. Is climate change making it all worse? Well, I guess the coal miners all around that area will not want to think that. But meanwhile, salut Babette and courage. Around 5.30, we'll have Peter Iacono with us. He's from the Transition Film Festival. He spent two years in the Latrobe Valley finding out how the closure of the Hazelwood coal-fired power station will affect people's lives. And he'll focus, I think, on the great mine fire there, which was just a huge impact to those people and seemingly forgotten by our um, Scott Morrison, who held a piece of coal in Parliament on the very anniversary of that fire. I think all of our city listeners who are gung-ho for climate action will pick up a lot from Peter about fairness to our fellow citizens as we decarbonise. Then at 5.15 we'll have Claire O'Rourke from Solar Citizens to talk about doing more than just putting solar panels on your roof. As Annie Leonard said, we need to flex that citizen muscle and get away from seeing ourselves as consumers. Citizens take action. And 2017 will see a lot of resistance as well as proactive action. We need to reverse that terrible apathy that allowed that lump of coal to be put up in Parliament and the man to the PM, the MP to say it doesn't bite. No doubt his focus groups told him this would play real well with the apathetic, but that's not us, is it? So let's get on to the State of the Nation with Dr. Roderick Campbell. He is an economist from the Australia Institute. Welcome, Rod. How are you? I'm well, Vivian. Great to be on. And just a quick correction, I'm not actually a doctor. Um, I first heard Rod speaking up at a community consultation. He spoke up as an economist on behalf of the people of Bolga who were up there against <clears throat> fighting against Rio Tinto. Now, Rod, you said to me then that the public hearing was just theatre. What was really going on? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that relates a lot to the planning process in New South Wales, um, which is having a lot of, lot of review at the moment. And what, what essentially happened 
at, at that at that point and in those hearings is, and the reason I, ca- I called it theatre, is they're, they're promoted as a public meeting uh, and people are encouraged to come and, and have their say. Um, but of course, the planning process is a long way underway by the time that happens. Uh, millions of dollars have been spent on environmental impact statements and consultants by the company. Uh, you know, tens of people from the company will be working on ensuring that the project goes ahead by that stage. They will have been talking to the government and uh, public service for months, if not years. Uh, and by the time you get to one of those meetings, there's an awful lot of momentum there uh, before the community actually get their say. For, for people living nearby, who for whom you know, the first the first time they they were able to say something public was at a hearing like we went to. Uh, you know, the deck stacked against you by the time you get there, and you know, beyond those factors I've just mentioned, in those in those meetings <clears throat> and the people making those decisions. They can only, they're only really allowed to include in their consideration things that address the terms of reference or the environmental impact statement or other documentation. So it's actually a pretty specialised hearing, even though it's called a public meeting. And so that's why, that's why I think it's little more than, little more than theatre. Mm. It gives people a chance to get up on stage and, and have their say, um, and it's a bit of a show, but generally the decision's already been made. Yeah, well, it's it. I mean, it is a very good show. I've been to a few of those, and I'm always impressed how eloquent these people are, and they have such dedication, and they're the sort of innocent people who are, you know, really believing that the system is going to work if they only tell the truth. And um, the last time I interviewed those Bulga people, I've really come to love those people. I've met them at various such situations, and it's become personal to me now. You know, it's the David and Goliath story in this little town of Bulga, and, you know, I interviewed the ones who were out on the road. They were doing a vigil, I think, sometime at the end of last year. I interviewed them. I said, where are, where are you? And they said, oh, we're having a vigil out on the road where just where the mine needs to expand and we're just holding this road, which is owned by the council. But I think Rio Tinto has since sold out to a Chinese-owned company. I read in the paper for $3 billion or more. And I wonder, do you think Bolga has a chance and is coal... You know, $3 billion sale, there must be still, still some profits in there. Is coal really on the ropes, as it seemed to be last year? Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's a few different questions there. Um, I mean, to get the latest on Bulga, you should probably talk to the people from Bulga. I chatted to some of them the other day, and they said there's a few interesting um, developments going on with the local council uh, being quite opposed to the acquisition of Wallaby Scrub Road, which has been at the centre of a lot of the problems around that. But I, I think, I think the, to give listeners a bit more perspective on, on the Boulder issue, what, what this was originally all about was there's been a coal mine there for quite a long time, there's been a, a ridge, there's, there's been a village there for a very long time, uh, and there's been a ridge in between them, and they've generally been uh, pretty happy neighbours. Uh, and in 2005, there was an agreement between Rio Tinto and the New South Wales government that the coal mine wouldn't expand through that ridge, and so there'd always be a ridge between the village and uh, the coal mine, um, and everyone was happy. <laughs> These people weren't 
entirely objecting to uh, living next to it, living next to a coal mine. What they objected to was when uh, coal prices went up, Rio Tinto said to the New South Wales government, "How about we tear up that agreement we signed a couple of years ago?" Uh, because, quite frankly, the coal is more important than what we've uh, promised to the community of New South Wales. And uh, it's basically that simple. So sort of returning to your theme a little bit of, uh, you know, are we, are we solar citizens or coal citizens? As far as New South, the New South Wales government's been concerned for quite a long time, we're, we're really uh, better off being coal citizens um, or at least we're, we're better off being uh, obedient citizens to, to Rio Tinto and, and their ilk. Well, Rio um, is getting out of the coal business, or I don't read all the financial papers, I dare say you do, but in general, let's not go into too much detail, but mm. last year it seemed to me that coal was, uh, you know, in dire straits and a lot of mines have in fact been put in mothballs. So what's the... What, you know, what's the economic outlook for them? Yeah, so there's a really interesting dynamic going on in uh, coal in Australia, uh, and and that is that the the really major diversified mining companies have been ever so slowly and ever so quietly getting out of coal. Uh, you, you've mentioned that Rio Tinto sold or have have ended into a deal. The mm. deal hasn't gone through yet mm. uh, to sell the Bulg- uh, the actually the Mount Thorley Walkworth mine adjacent to Bulga, the mm. separate Bulga mine that's owned by Glencore. But yeah, so Rio Tinto have have been selling out slowly over a number of years. Um, BHP now only own one mine in the Hunter Valley, <clears throat> and really only one thermal coal mine in Australia, I think. Uh, Anglo-American have been looking to get out of coal, certainly in Australia. And so you're seeing a lot of the bigger, uh, you know, generally more, obviously a lot of conditions, a lot of exceptions, but generally more socially aware and big name, you know, in retail funds sort of companies. Those, those big household name companies have been slowly getting out of coal. Um, partly for their own image and partly because I think they're, they're concerned that the financial future of coal is becoming a lot more questionable and, and how the world, uh, how coal markets react to a world that wants less coal um, is really uncertain. It, it, it depends a lot on government policies in relation to climate and mining It'll depend a lot on technology development in areas that those companies don't actually deal in, like renewable energy and energy efficiency. Um, and I, I think they're seeing that the future of, of this commodity is, is uncertain and potentially there's a lot of downside. So you're seeing those big companies sort of quietly exit. And they exit quietly because... If you're trying to sell off your coal mines, the last thing you want to say is, we're getting out of coal because it's a bad investment and uh, doesn't look good for your company. Um, that would send the price of your, uh, of your coal mine plummeting. You know, imagine, imagine selling your house and saying, I want to get out of here because I've got no idea if it's going to fall down or not. <laughs> That's not the sort of thing you say at your own auction. No. So, uh, yeah, look, I, I think... Um, yeah, we've certainly seen a resurgence in the coal price for a number of reasons, uh, in particular because China started closing down 
uh, a lot of coal mines there. China's the world's biggest coal producer by a long, long way. I think they make a bit under, well, last year I think they produced a bit under 4 billion tonnes, about, you know, almost 10 times as big as Australia. Um, So, yeah, China's been closing down coal mines, so the coal price has gone up, and that's provided a fair bit of joy for particularly small Australian mining companies with marginal coal mines. Um, but the future is very uncertain, and that's why big companies are, are slowly getting out, and we're sort of going to work our way down the mining industry food chain. <clears throat> you know, the big predators have left, uh, and now we're getting to the scavengers and then the bacteria uh, of... Uh, the mining food chain. <laughs> All right. Well, next week we're going to have a singer on the show who's got a show called Adios Adani, and it's a musical, <laughs> and they're raising funds for the, um, you know, the Aboriginal people up there, the Wangu Jagalingu people. That, that That's a fundraiser. But Adios Adani, do you think Adios Adani is the right name? And apparently our government is bankrolling the infrastructure for rail. Uh, what do you think about that? Just briefly, Rod, because we've got more to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I, in terms of adios adani, I, I, I love alliteration as much as the next person, but uh, I'm not sure if uh, speaking Spanish to an Indian conglomerate is uh, <laughs> the best approach. Um, so in terms of what the Commonwealth Government are looking at, um, they it, it's pretty interesting because... So there's the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund facility, sorry, which the federal government has set up. They've set up $5 billion, which is essential. You know, you could look at it as a subsidised loan scheme or a less kind uh, description might be a slush fund. They've set up a slush fund of about $5 billion to lend to non-commercial projects. Um, According to the minister... This uh, fund is overseen by a, a fully independent board, uh, and you know how independent it is because he keeps running around telling them what they should be putting the money into. Um, so we've had Minister Canavan, the Minister for Resources, pretty publicly saying that Adani have applied for uh, for these loans, even though it's very difficult to get that sort of information out of the uh, facility itself. But uh, he said that they've applied and given some pretty powerful political support, some pretty big hints um, to the people who run this fund as to what he thinks uh, should go to it. So essentially we're looking at a billion-dollar subsidised loan to Adani to build uh, railway infrastructure to where they'd like to build a very big coal mine. Well, this comes to um, the question of economists. You know, do economists give government the right advice or are they meeting up with the right economists? Because it would seem to me lots of other people in society are saying that those are stranded assets and that that's a bad investment. Um, look, I don't think you'll find an economist in the country who thinks this is a good idea. And, you know, you really only need to go to the, you know, the Financial Review, which is hardly an anti-coal publication, and you know, the editor of the Financial Review uh, in an editorial said that uh, this, this subsidy shouldn't go ahead. Um, you know, a, a bit of, a, a bit of uh, consistency, I guess, from, from the financial press. Of, they don't 
they generally don't like public subsidy and um, they don't think Adani should be subsidised either. Mm. I, I, I said there's a lot of economists I disagree with in Australia, um, but I actually haven't heard a single economist, uh, even those I usually disagree with, um, say that they thought this was a good idea. It took it took quite a few tweets, but I managed to get the right-wing think tank uh, economist from the um, Centre for Independent Studies to say that he didn't think it should go ahead either. Mm. So, you know, you've got left and right economists in pretty much furious agreement that a subsidised loan to Adani is bad economics, um, but clearly the federal government have decided it's good politics for them. Yeah. It's, right. good, it's right. good politics for them because... They're, you know, I, I think because they're concerned about the Queensland state election. Oh no! Um, and you know, and what you know, what might happen there? And I think some of those coal regions might be pretty important in the Queensland state mm. election. But also, they're they're pretty clearly beholden to the mining lobby. Um, you've seen Scott Morrison running around uh, brandishing a lump of coal. Um, it's a pretty strong signal as to, to who's bidding he's doing. Rod, thank you for that, and that's quite sort of definitive don't, about don't, Adani. Don't blame, don't blame economists for this one. No, I won't. All right, then, but I just don't think they're listening to anyone sensible. But, look, I want to take it onto a, a higher stage, you know, about deco- decarbonising our whole society. The, there's a lot of, um, you know, societal pressure towards that but people don't seem to know the path beyond zero emissions it spends all this time publishing reports on you know the path the blueprint the how to get there but I've just recently been in Malaysia and I noticed I interviewed quite a few people there and I noticed that they are very proud of what their oil and gas revenue has done and I noticed other countries too you know more developing countries, they say, you know, our revenue from fossil fuels has lifted us, millions of us, out of poverty. So the message that leave it in the ground that the activists are all saying now in the, um, you know, Paris carb- um, climate, I was going to say carbon conference, climate conference, that, you know, they agree that we must leave a certain percentage or a large amount, and most people would say all of it, in the ground is causing panic in, you know, um, exporting countries. Um it's causing panic here, the whole question of exporting coal and gas and not exporting coal and gas. That is causing a sort of, you know, this wild response, I think, very radically wrong response. But um, in countries like Germany, they are smoothly managing a path away from fossil fuel dependence. And I can't see why, at least in the domestic scene, Australia is so resistant. Do you think it makes economic sense for us to decarbonise here, just our, our economy? Oh, of course it does, and and it is, and it is happening. Uh, you know, I think we've had, I think it's five coal-fired power stations closed down in the last couple of years, and of course Hazelwood's closing. Like we we are, it is happening slowly, whether the government likes it or not. Um, it's really just an, an issue of timing, and of course, from an economic perspective, uh, the. I mean, from an economic perspective, we should be considering carbon costs and air pollution costs in everything, which if we did that, of course, coal and fossil fuels would be actually quite expensive sources of energy and we would have been investing in renewable energy a lot a long time ago. Um, but even so, I mean, I've just got a few fairly recent figures here. They're American, so they're not, they're not straight up to date. But you know, you're looking at, to, to develop a megawatt, 
capacity of coal-fired generation in the States at the moment, you're looking at between 60 and $143 a megawatt. Uh, so a pretty wide range, depending on where you are and quality of coal and that, and that sort of thing. But, I mean, uh, solar PV is already under that a lot of the time. It doesn't get down to 60 They've got down to $88 a megawatt here. Um, there's other utility-scale uh, PV that's down lower. I can, there's a couple of examples here at $49, $46 a megawatt hour. Uh, megawatt, sorry. <clears throat> so, I mean, you, you'll probably have, uh, I think Claire will probably know more about that sort of thing yeah. than I do. Yeah, but, sure. you know, on dollar-for-dollar dollar terms, that that's starting to stack up. I, I just I think really, it's maybe, I, I sorry to interrupt um, you there, Rod, I just think it's a message that needs to be put out so blindingly clear that everybody gets it. And I'm sorry to cut you off there because I will have to get on to Claire. That's um, right. I'm going to cut you off, though, yes, because go. I found a, uh, a really great statistic today. Uh, <laughs> I was flicking, the flicking ultimate through, statistic. I was flicking through the gas lobby group, Appia's submission to the review into uh, taxation of oil and gas in Australia, and I'm glad you brought up Malaysia and how proud they are of their uh, gas sector because uh, it's from Appia's own uh, research, Malaysia, the, the Malaysian government receives between 80 and 90% of the profits or bene- economic benefits of an oil and gas project in that country. I know. Australia is languishing down in the 50s, uh, and that's... And that's if uh, all the appropriate uh, taxes and so on are paid, and of mm. course the PRRT is not bringing in enough revenue. Um, hence the review in the first place. So, yeah, Malaysians have have a right to be proud. I, I, I think there's uh, probably a few issues there anyway. Mm. But in terms of at least deriving benefit from their fossil fuel resources, they are miles ahead of Australia. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Rob. I had a lot more to ask you, and I just wanted you to put a plug in. I noticed in the paper today that the um, Australia Institute that you belong to is touring an American conservative politician or ex-politician called Bob Ingles, Inglis, just in an absolute two sentences. Can you tell us what's his story? Sure. So Bob is a former Republican congressman uh, who is you know, quite, in a lot of ways, very conservative. But he's uh, he believes the science of climate change and really thinks that conservatives can and should be leading the charge on climate policy. Okay, for Melbourne listeners, just look it up in today's age. It's a story about Bob Inglis, and I think his tour will touch on to Melbourne and Sydney. So it's also in the Sydney Morning Herald, is and okay. the, I think it's in the Canberra Times. Fantastic. And anyone in Sydney uh, can go and see Bob talk uh, tomorrow night. Fantastic. At the University of New South Wales. Okay. Thank you very much, Rod. That was Rod Campbell from the Australia Institute. Now we have time for an announcement. And or maybe we won't have the announcement. I'll do the announcement, and then we'll hear one later. We've got to um, advertise the subscriber drive, listeners. Today is the United Nations Day of Radio, and you know 
this is a wonderful thing. The United Nations actually puts radio on a pedestal for once. And I think most of you will say, well, I just heard it on the radio. Or I don't know how I knew that, but I just heard it on the radio. Well, if you listen to 3CR regularly, I'm sure you'll hear a lot of unusual things that you would never hear on any other radio station. And maybe if you listen to this program, you'll hear people and things that that you would never have a chance to hear otherwise. So we're asking you to subscribe to 3CR. That means become a member of 3CR. All you need to do is phone up the office in business hours, which is um, Melbourne 03. 94198377 and just say you'd like to become a, a member, a subscriber which gives you a stake in the independence of this uh, beautiful radio station now I think we've got Claire O'Rourke on the line um, I think we can lighten up a bit now Claire O'Rourke is the director of Solar Citizens and they are full of sunlight so welcome Claire Thank you Vivian, great to be with you I'm glad to hear your voice um, look Give us a snapshot of some of the people in Solar Citizens. Oh, so we're an independent community organisation and we're um, mostly solar owners, are folks that um, are helping build the movement in support of solar power and get better policies. So it's usually folks who are um, owning their own home. They're not rich people. Most people um, who support Solar Citizens have a um, primary income of around $60,000 a year or less. Um, but they are usually um, homeowners or people with mortgages who are able to very um, easily install those um, solar systems on the rooftop. And now we've seen, you know, 1.6 million homes. It's just every time I've just been on some leave for summer holidays and I've come back a few weeks later and we've clicked over to 1.6 million homes, but it was only about 1.55 million before, um, you know, late last year. So... Mm-hmm. We the solar boom is on, and that's the um, those interests of those solar owners uh, and those who support solar and want to be able to go solar are the interests that we represent. Yeah, well, there are still um, impediments, and I'd like to know what new rules would boost this take up rate for solar citizens. I'm including well, businesses. It's certainly been a day for um, you know to really see some attempts at blocking. Um, for transition to renewables and clean energy, which is kind of odd because most Australians support renewable energy and want to see a lot more of it across the country. Um, you know, today we saw um, it exposed by the wonderful work of the Australia Institute, actually. So oh. congratulations to Rod and his um, colleagues for... They've done a freedom of information request that actually shows that the Prime Minister's offices had advice that the recent blackouts in South Australia were not caused by the state's, um, you know, reasonable uptake of renewable energy, but actually by a complete um, failure of the energy system with the distribution networks literally falling over during a massive extreme weather event. So I think the case that the the um, Turbo government's been putting about, um, you know, renewables to be to blame for energy instability is being well, it's shown to be a bit of Malcolm Turnbull dust, I think. Mm. Um, but more generally, you know, it, the cost of installing um, solar over, you know, for the average residential system over its lifetime has dropped in just the last, um, well, between 2010 and 2014 from... 35 cents to about 17 cents per kilowatt hour. That's um, unfortunately in US dollars, that figure. Yeah. Um, that's some research from the University of Newcastle that's 
um, discovered that. So residential rooftop solar is actually cheaper than um, buying solar power um, off the grid when you look at the average kilowatt hour price of electricity is mm-hmm. around 20, 24 to 28 cents a kilowatt hour for most of the time. So um, solar for residential purposes is winning, but where we're seeing some um, uh, roadblocks is really around um, you know, encouraging um, businesses to take up solar, as you say, and it's more around um, you know, allowing the rules so that businesses can not only install those systems, but then be able to trade their electricity locally. So you could see, for example, you know, industrial areas that might have you know, schools or cafes down the road that are open um, at different times of the week where they'd be able to sell that excess energy back into the grid. Um, and also we need some more um, improvements around making it easier for people who are living in um, apartment blocks or folks who are renting to be able to access um, solar as well. Yeah. And then I think the really big one is that we're, you know, even, you know, the Prime Minister mentioned in his um, National Press Club speech the week before last that we need storage and large-scale storage as well as small-scale storage. But we actually need incentives to allow that next phase of solar rollout to to um, to take off. Mm-hmm. And that can be done in a range of different ways. And, you know, we, we would support um, governments by any government to encourage the um, accelerated uptake of battery storage because that will, again, help to reduce the cost um, over time and it'll do that quite rapidly. So, you know... Once we've got battery storage coupled with solar, both in you know small-scale situations on people's homes, through microgrids for suburbs or you know industrial areas, and then also the large-scale storage for those large-scale solar, solar and wind plants. Once we've cracked that nut, um, there is you know we'll we're well on, we'll be well on the way to having a full transition of our energy system that doesn't rely on um, old forms of, of generation mm. and. Yeah, and certainly, you know, even now, um, new build coal is, um, you know, at cost parity or, or more expensive than new build solar and wind. And, you know, once you've built the new solar and wind, the fuel is free, it's abundantly available, particularly on, um, you know, a beautiful day like, like it is in Sydney where I'm speaking to you from today. Whereas, um, you know, when, if we're building more coal-fired generation, whether they're supercritical coal or whether they're, you know, plain old hat dirty coal, we, um, we have to keep fueling them and that's going to be a cost that, you know, will continue in perpetuity for um, all consumers. Um, whereas, you know, wind and solar is the smart, the smart investment for really keeping downward pressure on power bills. Yeah, well, look, I, I, I could see with your press release this morning that you were really quite furious at the lies and sort of um, obfuscation and confusion, but we know that politicians use confusion. It's a good tactic if you don't want change. You know, people just get confused and um, the government keeps it up about the South Australia blackouts, about um, everything, about clean coal. They just keep pumping out stuff that confuses people. And it made me furious when I came back from Malaysia. You know, I went on a holiday too and I saw this, came back to this highly educated country, you know, we're a lucky country, and yet we still got these MPs treating us like absolute children holding a lump of coal. I'd like to know, how does it make you feel as an Australian and as an activist, you've been in this a long time, how does it make you feel? Well, I think, you know, the Australian, you know, the Australian public, Australian voters are not idiots, you know. 
I'm not an idiot, you're not an idiot, neither is the average person. And I think people see the um, renewable technology that's available and they think, yeah, that makes sense. Looks like a sensible investment. That's why there's, you know, five and a half million Australians living under a solar rooftop these days. Um, but when we look at the facts, I think what we're seeing here is a deliberate attempt, a deliberate and, you know, supposedly systematic way of trying to, um, as you say, obfuscate the facts. The facts are that the South Australian blackout was not caused by the renewables in the mix. It was caused by a devastating weather event, of which we are likely to see many more, given the changes to our, our climate. We, these, de- this devastating weather effect um, caused the statewide blackout. It caused the energy system to kick in and um, the safety safety mechanisms were switched on and then you know the states went, went dark. Um, also, the fact is that if you want to... Um, have a really robust, um, clean, renewable energy system in the long term is that doing that upfront investment will help achieve that energy security that is being um, uh, talked up um, to in that attempt by the government to kind of conflate um, energy security with um, the need to, to keep on with the old hat coal agenda. Um, also, the fact is that, you know, the... There's $5 billion worth of investment in renewable renewable energy and 3,000 jobs that are um, going to go into construction in Australia in 2017. And that's the the largest amount of construction of large-scale renewable um, projects since the Snowy Hydro scheme. It's, it's phenomenal. So, so these are these are projects that are up and on on, on the move. Really they're they're really built, contracted, and yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and so so I, I'm quite dismayed personally, but also on, on behalf of um, you know all Australians who, and it's most Australians that want to see a renewable future because they don't see that represented in the parliament. So imagine if you know you had the the prime minister holding a solar panel in Parliament on, on Friday rather than a lump of coal. I think it would have sent the message that really does line up with where the public's at. Mm. All right. How close are we to having large-scale solar power stations that can do storage, do you think? Uh, well, if the predictions were that, the, that large-scale storage would be um, available now or, you know, the pr- predictions have all been, you know, one and a half to three years away ever since I've been... Um, in the privileged position of leading solar citizens. So that's still um, a little bit hard to tell. And I think the reason there's been a bit of a delay on that in Australia is around um, the uncertainty of federal policy. So the other outrage that we saw today was a number of state liberal oppositions in South Australia, Victoria and Queensland planning to roll back state renewables um, targets and goals that have been set by the government in the United States. Um, and saying, well, it should be a federal target that is set. Um, the, the federal renewable energy target will end in um, just three years, in 2020, and there's no plan from the government to facilitate that to continue, which does discourage um, long-term investment um, options that might include storage. Mm. Um, the other thing, you know, there's a flagship solar um, thermal, which is, you know, sometimes referred to as baseload, uh, solar, but it's actually dispatchable solar that's designed to store up the, um, that, that energy and dispatch it back into the um, system when it's required, when variable sources fluctuate. And the, that project has been, the community has campaigned for that, pro, for that project to replace the um, old coal generators there that recently closed down. They've been campaigning for five years 
to try and get that flagship project up and it's still nowhere, in part because of the uncertainty around the investment environment for that technology. So there are certainly like smaller scale battery storage um, projects that are live and running now, often in new suburban developments. Um, those, but in terms of the really large scale uh, battery storage projects, where we, we get to see them. However, like there has been the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency have been charged by the Prime Minister to fund a large scale storage round, um, as well as to consider clean coal, which is which yeah. is kind of a not only a ridiculous um, term concept yeah. itself, but um, it also could potentially undermine the function of those two institutions. Okay. Um, but it is encouraging to see battery storage is, is the next next in line for um, serious study and support from those two okay. important um, funding institutions. Thanks for that update, Claire. I really admire you and the Solar Citizens. I know there's lots and lots of you. And at the Sustainable Living Festival, we heard a lot about how people see themselves just as consumers and they need to Mm. see themselves as citizens. And that brings in that thing, you know, the pride you might feel if the Prime Minister held up a, a, a solar panel. You need to be active citizens to get that pride back. And certainly, um, more people need to pressure government and business to decarbonize. But you've, turned consumers of people who maybe have just put solar panels on their roof, they've turned into solar citizens which is a very um, I think impressive lobby group and I hope hope you have some sort of effect on the coming uh, elections so thank you very much for talking to us today and keep up the fight Thanks Vivian, we'll, do, we'll keep going Thanks Claire, okay just time for a community announcement You're listening to 3CR Radio Bedalo primo bacio che mai dato, bedalo primo bacio che mai dato, no terremoto, no terremoto. I'm Mauro Durante from Canzoniere Grecanico Salentino. This is 3CR855 on your IM dial. Please subscribe. The community is important, the spirit of community is the most important thing, so subscribe. Our next guest is um, Peter Yakano. I hope you enjoyed that music, uh, listeners. It gave you a time to jump up and dance. But the real message that we were meant to be giving you was about the subscriber drive, and I support that. I'd love you to all become subscribers to Radio 3CR. That means you become a member of a very select club. Um, you need to support 3CR because we really only live on subscriptions and on Radiothon. So... We do you a very good service, I think, every day, turning out lots of interesting stories and interviews. So please support the subscriber drive. You just need to phone the office on 94198377. Now we can go over to Peter. Are you there, Peter? Hi, Vivian. Yes, I am. (laughs) Hi. Look, um, you're in Hazelwood, or you've been down to Hazelwood, you've been down to Morwell, the Latrobe Valley. That's where the coal lobby has massive power. And the power station at Hazelwood is closing down in April. People are in a unique position, I think, now to take back some of that power from the multinationals. So you've been filming there for, I think, two years, and your film will show at the Transition Film Festival on the 25th of February. That's a Saturday at Nova in Carlton. So tell us why you called the film Our Power. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, um, Our Power is about where Victoria gets its power from, the majority of the power. 80% of the power still comes from the Latrobe Valley, from three mines and power plants down there, Loyang, 
your lawn and also hazel, which is closing soon. Um, but it's also about the power of the people. Um, for a very, very long time, for decades, um, the coal lobbies down there, the coal owners and operators, had a social license to pollute that area. And there's a, there's a known uh, health deficit. Um, in Anyone that lives in the Latrobe Valley lives a little bit shorter than most of us in Melbourne. You know, all our problems of pollution, of generating that energy by brown coal, which is really, really bad, um, was put down in Latrobe Valley. Uh, in 2014, there was a very unique event. Um, the Hazelwood Mine Fire uh, burned for 45 days and blanketed the Latrobe Valley smoke. And it was basically like being in a war zone for 45 days for, for the uh, residents of Latrobe Valley. And, uh, you know, that really sparked the community into, into thinking they deserved better than that. And they actually started pushing up, pushing back against the big multinational coal operators. And it's, uh, yeah, we've been down there for two years and it's, it's really an inspirational story that we're hoping to bring to Melbourne audiences. Oh, that's great. I, I have been interviewing some of those people too over those two years and it's a dreadful story as well. Um, and I wonder what has been your experience meeting the activists and um, the people who went through such a lot? I guess climate action's not on the top of their priority list. No. <laughs> no, listen, a lot of them have been ignited by this fire, quite literally. I, I keep on dropping the puns, I'm sorry, but... Um, <laughs> It's, you know, it's really inspirational because it's all sorts. You know, it's, it's mothers that have kind of sat around dormant for 20 years. It's, it's young people. It's old people. It's, it's workers as well as uh, their families that are all kind of forming together as, as one community. You know, it's not perfect like any, any uh, communities trying to ca- come together from different um, scopes within the community. Um, but I think they're really working it out, and it's really inspirational to hear some of their stories. They're, they're, they're really, you know, they're true battlers, and they've been through a lot. Um, some are still suffering, and, and we must acknowledge that death did occur during the fires as well, so the community's kind of still dealing with that. They've had some wins along the way as well. The, uh, the first inquiry for the fire was, un, you know, somewhat unjustly closed. Um, but the community fought very, very hard to get that reopened and pretty much all the recommendations from the inquiry have been taken up by the current government, uh, current state government. Um, so that's really good. They've had small wins along the way. Um, but like I said, yeah, it's just been really inspirational to talk and uh, hear their stories. Well, apart from not knowing any women or mothers who stay at home being dormant, <laughs> which you said, I'd love to know just some of the characters. Who are the people in your film? Um, okay, so we've got, uh, we've got coal workers. We've got, um, yeah, like I said, um, everyday mothers, um, partners to, to people that worked, um, you know, in and around the Latrobe Valley. Mm. Um, we've got, uh, retired people that used to work from, for the SEC when it was a state, um, owned entity. Um, you know, we've got young people as well that have suffered through the fires. We had a, a lady who had a miscarriage, two miscarriages during the fire, uh, we have a lady who uh, unfortunately lost her husband of 30 years who lived on the south side of Morwell through the majority of the fire, um, unfortunately died to a brain aneurysm about six months after the fire. Um, yeah, I think a lot, of part, a lot of part of the community is in there. We've got uh, union workers as well, people from the unions who are really um, get trying to um, bind the workers together and, and, and to know that community deserves better than the kind of the treatment they've got yeah. from the owner-operators down there. Well... What about climate action? How will your film help us, you know, the city people who will see the yeah. film probably? how we're, We've got climate on the mind. It really is desperately serious 
um, that we phase out coal, we decarbonise society, and I've met Absolutely. a lot of those Latrobe people, they say the same. You know, they understand the writing's on the wall and they should bring it on. But um, how will the film that you're making um, help us face these challenges of climate change? I think there's absolutely no doubt that we need to transition as soon as possible. Um, the only thing is that the Latrobe Valley has been providing power to the state for over 90 years now. It's, it's given Victoria its energy security for 90 years, but the time has come to very rapidly move on from coal. Um, I, you know, I want to normalise this story for most Victorians, and, and um, I think the quickest way that we can transition away from coal is to bring their story to Melbourne um, and to not paint them as... Um, awful people that burn coal. Um, you know, it's unfortunately been a necessity of our industry and our home life for, yeah. for many, many decades. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just want to kind of normalise that and, and move us forward together as one state and bring their story to Melbourne. Well done. Well, look, the Morwell mine fire showed, I think, the worst of capitalism. Absolutely. Um, I interviewed Tom Doig, who wrote his book about that, and he went down and visited people, you know, ran, you know, kept driving back and forth, back and forth to get more. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. And uh, apparently some of the workers were expected to work in the toxic conditions in those 45 days. One of the men, one of the drivers was told to drive out the back gate to avoid having his yeah. lung functions monitored, and he then passed out. Firemen were sent down into the pit without a map during the fire. You know, there's a coal mine on fire, so can't, I can't even imagine how disgusting it must have been, but they were sent down without a map of where all the pressure points were to get access water to fight it. And I think if climate change is demanding that we close down these pits and that we stop exporting coal and gas, it also challenges our whole capitalist system, the whole economic system, the way corporations get what they want over our dead bodies. That's how I think about it. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I can't, I can't agree more. And, and symbolically, the, the Hazelwood Mine Fire is, is the clearest line in the sand for both the community and us in Melbourne to learn about. Um, there are massive, massive big picture problems and they all kind of emanate out of the Latrobe Valley. Um, you know, it's, it's caught up in our political system, it's caught up in our economic system. Our economic system because, you know, there's so many subsidies that do go to the coal industry. Our political system because the coal lobby is, is, is massive and it does unfortunately influence policy outcome and it affects us everyday community members, even in Melbourne. You know, I, I heard your last caller, you know, uh, community members are not dumb. We all want to move on to renewables, um, but there's this big system that we have to face and we all really do have to unite. Mm. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, the best way you can do it is probably hear the Latrobe Valley story. Yeah. Well, look, a lot of people are talking about a just transition for the coal towns. Mm. And I heard at the Sustainable Living Festival uh, a CFMEU leader from Hazelwood, he said, and I just wrote down his words, he said, work as a coal Copy it in the neck. I don't see any justice. And then the ACTU man got up and he was talking about a transition authority to help all those towns where coal is being phased out because it's not just Hazelwood. Hazelwood's, you know, one domino falling, but there are, I think, 14 other power plants around Australia still coal-fired. And um, so the ACTU man said transition authority and then he talked about early retirement, retraining. But I wonder what about all the other people, you know, the hairdresser, the school teacher, the local people. The, the problem about that power structure and, the, and that social power structure is, I guess, because these um, coal workers are on very, you know, they're on very high wages and one of their wages will support um, two or three other jobs within the community. So, uh, 
you know, that's to consider. Um, in terms of energy, uh, unfortunately, the Trobe Valley is not the most sunniest place in the world and it's not the most windiest place in the world. So, you know, we can't exactly swap out coal energy for other sources of energy down there. Even storage uh, possibilities like pumped hydro, I think there are better uh, spots in the state compared to what's in the Trobe Valley. So, you know, there's no silver, silver bullet for the Trobe Valley um, and, and that's why I'm kind of really pushing that I really want to tell this story in Melbourne as well and, and, and give Melbourne audiences a glimpse of what actually goes on down there because it's only, it's only 90 minutes down the road and uh, I'm, I'm absolutely sure when that story gets out and we, we all get across it, we can all transition very, very quickly. Right, because those people were saying we're collateral damage as if in a war and Melbourne people don't know that was even going on. Absolutely. Your film will be shown as a work in progress and we urgently do need a fair transition for the citizens of this coal community and all the others around the country and the world. And I wonder what are some of the most creative solutions you've heard of? Um, I think, uh, yeah, pumped, pumped hydro and... Um yeah, it's got to be about storage, I think. Pumped hydro and uh, solar thermal uh, looks really, really good. But like I said, that's, that's not really an option for Latrobe Valley. Um, there are co- cooperatives. There is one great cooperative that, is, that has recently started up in the valley called Earthworker. They're making solar, uh, solar hot water tanks down there. So in terms of like people owning the power, um, that would be, be really great. I'd love to democratise the power system in a way and co- cooperatives are definitely one way that we can do that. Another way in terms of using battery technology could be virtual power stations where um, I know big operators are starting to get into that now, but if, if communities can actually start to come together and, and cooperatively own technologies like that, you know, possibly there could be some hope for the Latrobe Valley because there's a, there's a vast uh, wealth of knowledge in terms of generating electricity and uh, electricians and uh, you know and, and generators down there that actually probably could help us out yes and diversifying I think a lot like Newcastle's a, a city that's had to diversify when yeah. BHP closed down you know like a lot of cities and communities have had to do that but this is such a big one and it's um, it's like a what would I say it's like a uh, it stands up out of the landscape this Hazelwood doesn't it it's such a big um, thing as you said 90 years it's been there supporting our electricity so um, the fall of that needs to be replaced by something rather than just people just disappearing into the distance yeah absolutely I think it's got to be replaced by multiple technologies um but it is it is kind of crazy, you know. Eighty percent of the power comes from this tiny little area. You know, you can see the three coal mines from from the top of one hill. You know, they're basically on top of each other, and in between these three coal mines are three little townships as well. And uh, you know, they've been there for you know nineteen twenties when Sir John Monash went down to the Latrobe Valley and set that up. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, the the Victorian power grid was rather decentralised at the time. Mm-hmm. And we centralised it, and uh, I, I see that kind of coming full circle now. We are moving moving away from a centralised system where, um, you know, we're going to decentralise technologies where it's more of a many-to-many 
uh, setup rather than a yes. one to many. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I don't know, uh, I, I think the Latrobe Valley can lead us on that journey. Yes, that's very good. You said at the very end the, the thing that I was, um, you know, I'd had it in the back of my mind, but that is where it's going, isn't it? Decentralised energy, community-owned energy and and diversification of economies too, local. Absolutely. I can't agree with you more. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's all caught up in Latrobe Valley, those yeah. social, political, economic and environmental issues. Yeah. Um, and that's why I'm pushing so hard for Melbourne well, and, and connect with the Latrobe Valley because I'm absolutely sure it will move us on you know, it will transition us quicker. Well, I, I think the Melbourne audience will enjoy your film and probably the panel discussion afterwards because if it's a work in progress, you'll want to hear from the audience, won't you? What? what Absolutely. They, and then Mr Tom Doig, who, who you dropped, uh, will be emceeing the panel and you'll, oh, be, well, hearing, you'll be hearing directly from uh, Latrobe Valley residents and, um, and people in the industry as well. Okay, so just say the date again. It's, um, it's, Nova it's Saturday. It's, it's at Nova, yeah, Cinema Nova at um, Saturday the 25th of February at 2.30pm and it is an advanced screening so we'd love to come on down and um, interactively be a part of it all. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you so much. So that was Peter Iacono who's the director of a new film called Our Power. Now... It's time to say goodbye, but I'd like to have a little subscriber announcement. Have you got one, Andy? Uh, yeah. One, two, three, four, five. Break down, baby. Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Peter Basecamp. Welcome to the Little Red Slangy Treehouse. As you said, I'm going to the East West Channel ticket, as it usually does start at 5.30am. Uh, the Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians, in order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture. We need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 94198377 now. Okay, we're back again at the Beyond Zero Emissions show and nearly at the end. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, <coughs> Rod Campbell, who's an economist with the Australia Institute, Claire O'Rourke from Solar Citizens, and Peter Yacono, whose film called Our Power will be showing on the 25th of February at the Transition Film Festival at Cinema Nova in Carlton. Thanks also tonight to the radio team. That's Teddy and Jody promoting the show, Roger on podcasts, and Andy with me here in the studio on panel. If you're worried about the Adani coal mine going ahead, please note down this show. I mentioned it before. It's called Adios Adani. It's a musical and a fundraiser. The people who get money from this fundraising will be the Wangan Jabalingu people. Now, we've talked to them before on this show. They are the traditional landowners, and they will be completely uprooted by the Adani coal mine, mega coal mine, if it goes ahead. It's sacred land to them. And Adrian Baragaba spoke to us last year, and I must get Adrian back on the show to tell us what they're up to. They've had several court cases about this. And, uh, you know, they really need some funds. So please go along. I think it sounds fun. Adios, Adani. And next week, I think we're going to have one of the singers from the band who plays at Adios, Adani. If you want to see it, write it down. If you've got a pen, the Adios, Adani show is on at Bar Open, which is at 30, uh, no, not 30, it's 317 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, and the date is Thursday, 23rd of February.
The tickets are $10 and $25 if you want to show solidarity. We might even hear from the, uh, you know, we might even hear the music from the show next week if he brings his guitar. There's also a not to miss film at the Nova on Tuesday, February the 28th. It's called The Age of Consequences. Now, this film, I haven't seen it, and I don't know that I'll be able to see it, but I hope it gets a commercial release as well, but it's on at the Transition Film Festival at Cinema Nova, and Luke Taylor mentioned it last week. He said the scene where we see a wall, apparently this is true, I had really never heard about this, but there's a barbed wire and wall built around Bangladesh, the whole country of Bangladesh in the north, with troops armed, you know, uh, to prevent climate refugees getting over into India. And if that's not, Luke said to us, if that's not motivation enough for anyone to get the emissions down any way they can, well, nothing will be. So that film sounds very devastating, and it's all from the perspective of military personnel and, you know, security advisors. It's not from um, just people at the grassroots it's for people who are thinking strategically way ahead and can see the geo political crisis that climate change is going to create so you might have been to the sustainable living festival you can tell because these are the things i learned we should start eating less meat we should try radical simplicity we should certainly fly a lot less drive a lot less, we should get renewable energy and we should tell our leaders that we want an orderly transition away from fossil fuel. Orderly is the key word because Germany can do it. They can have an energy vendor which is just very orderly and well planned and it's not radical. Our present apathy is radical. It's suicidal. Also, there's a film on 2nd of March called The Bentley Effect. It's about the people who fought back against coal seam gas and they won. Some of those people appeared on this radio show and it's on also at the Nova, 2nd of March. So adios Adani and adios to all of you until next week.